is the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Yes, good afternoon to you. Jessica Hayes with you today. I really hope you enjoyed your Christmas break if you were lucky enough to have one. So good to have your company this afternoon. And coming up in the next hour, you'll hear why a well-known fish brand with operations in the Kimberley could soon be back in Australian hands. It comes amid some major expansion plans, including several new leases off the northwest coast. I guess uh, sort of getting a majority Australia ownership, and that's really nice to see because while it's great to see aquaculture growing in Australia, we see a lot of people overseas having more interest in our uh, beautiful clean waters than sometimes what we can get our locals uh, involved in. So it's, I'm, I'm very personally very excited. You'll catch up with Alastair Smart, who runs Barramundi Group's Australian business, Marine Produce Australia, shortly. And a new free trade agreement between Australia and India takes effect today. And it means the tariffs on around 85% of Australia's exports to the country will be eliminated and other tariffs reduced. Soon you'll hear why the federal government hopes to expand its reach. And if you tuned in via the digital stream, you can still be part of the conversation today. You can always send me a text. The number is 0448922604. That number again, 0448922604. Kicking things off, though, today, headers are still rolling across large areas of the grain-growing region. And while this year is set to be a record-breaker, it's also one of the longest-running harvests in recent memory for, for many people. Bruce Browning farms near Condinan, about 270 kilometres southeast of Perth. Bruce, good afternoon to you. How's harvest panning out for you? Yeah, good, thanks, Jess. Yeah, no, it's been, uh, been a tremendous harvest. Could be best on Everest when we had everything up at the end, but, yeah, shaping up that way. So what did your program look like this year and how far through it are you? Yeah, we're into our last few days now, but no, the season started, well, the harvest started beautifully. We'll, we did a bit of export hay and that was exceptional. Probably best ever yield started with the hay and then moved into the harvest. And it was, you know, after last year, which was, was a, our best ever up last year. And then uh, this year looks like topping it. Yeah, and it's probably the first time in my farming career that, that rainfall hasn't been uh, the limiting factor. It's probably our inputs, you know, we we didn't fertilise for the type of yields we've been getting this year. So you're still going, still a few days left. Is this normal for you to still be going at this time of year after Christmas? No, I wish it was, but no, it's not normal. We normally normally wrap it up by Christmas time, but yeah, we're not complaining about having to having to go a bit longer. Why have you had to go longer? Just that bit late season rain, and then waiting for the the right conditions to come. No, we we not really. We didn't get a, in, too many problems with moisture. But we started harvest on the twenty first of October, so it's been going a while. Canola yields are exceptional, and along with everything else, wheat and barley, and it's just been slow, slow harvesting. You know, the head is, you know, sort of eighty, hundred hectares a day is a big day. Just just with how much uh, grain and straw you've got to handle. Yeah. Yeah. So that <laughs> the harvest is beeping a lot more regularly than it usually would. Yes. No. It is. It's been tremendous. And, one to put in the memory bank, I think. Yeah. Um, what are you hearing from other growers in the Condinan area? Oh, I think everyone's having a cracker. Yeah, not too many complaints. A few wet spots people are talking about, you know, with ryegrass issues and where it got a bit drowned there for a while, but I think uh, everyone will put up with that for the way the rest of the paddock's been and the yields, overall yields have been tremendous. What do you think it means for the region to have an opportunity to reset with two good years in a row? Oh, it's fantastic. It really gives you a chance to reload and, you know, clear debts. And, yeah, it's been, been great for the community. I think everyone's got a, got a pretty big smile on their face out here. Bruce, just changing pace now, your community 
is going through a pretty difficult time at the moment. Three children left without their parents after they were killed in a car crash on the Corrigan, Condinan Road over Christmas. Now, this is a story that's really struck a chord with a lot of people around Australia and even the world. It must be a pretty difficult time for the community right now. Oh, it certainly is. It's absolutely tragic for those three small children to be left alone and, um, and you know, for that length of time um, and, and so close to a major highway that it's just quite incredible that, that um, they weren't found earlier. And, and it's just, yeah, you just can't imagine what those poor children went through. And, um, you know, my sympathy goes out to the, to the family of, of the two deceased as well, families. Yeah, it's a very sad occasion. I mean, how is the community supporting those three kids that have been impacted by this awful tragedy? Yeah, well, it's early days yet, but I know there's been a fund set up in the local IGA to, to support the grandmother of, of the, one of the deceased. She lives locally in Marbury Ladian. Um, yeah, hopefully our community can contribute. Well, I'm sure our community will contribute to the to the fund that's going there. In any small ways, it's uh, certainly going to be life-changing for, for that lady. A very sad time indeed. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me on the WA Country Hour this afternoon. Yeah, no worries, Jeff. Continent farmer and shire councillor Bruce Browning. It's 11 past 12 on the Country Hour. The WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Now, the international company behind the Kimberley's most well-known fish brand, Cone Bay Barramundi, has progressed plans to sell parts of its Australian business. Singapore-owned Barramundi Group is hoping to sell 75% of its Australian arm to Darwin-based fish company Wild Ocean Australia. Pending a shareholder vote, Barramundi Group will also obtain a third ownership of Wild Ocean Australia, which operates the Darwin fish market. It comes after the company revealed some major expansion plans that include the development of 13 new leases off the Kimberley Coast. Alastair Smart runs Barramundi Group's Australian business, Marine Produce Australia, and he says the new partnership is good news for those expansion plans. Well, pretty excited. It's been a long journey. It's uh, definitely has been protracted. It's been a lot of uh, work getting to this stage, searching for the right partners, and uh, we're now very happy with who we've ended up with. And uh, yeah, it's certainly been a bit of a tough journey. Also, this time of the year is, as you appreciate, it's challenging as well. So that sort of added extra challenge to to the whole process. But now, very happy. And can you tell me a bit about this partnership? Can you talk us through the details of it? So Wild Ocean is their team uh, based in Darwin and they've been doing uh, wild fisheries sort of product there and recently have acquired the Darwin fish market and because of that they've been processing some of our fish for coals. So they've, they've got a really good awareness of the product so when they heard about this they really believe in the quality and so basically in, in some respects Barramundi Group uh, retain a sort of uh, because they've actually also obtaining ownership of Wild Ocean as well, so it's a bit of a mix, and, and so they sort of still retain equity majority in MPA, but Wild Ocean takes seventy five percent of the product of the uh, of the company Marine Produce Australia. So together, I think you, you've got a, a local Australian partner. I think makes a big difference as well with all that experience. They've got their own value adding processing operation in Darwin that then gives you access to East Coast markets very well and also, you know, across 
to you know Singapore where uh, Barramundi Group is is based as well. So I think it's, there's a lot of potential for the future in in synergies. What does this mean for the Cone Bay brand and expansion plans in the Kimberley off the Kimberley coast? To continue on as it as it always has, I think um, our sort of plan is uh, not to be really effectively changed too much by Wild Ocean. They really like our plan, so we'll be looking to grow the volume um, over the, the coming ten years to ten thousand odd tons from what we're doing today is sort of around fifteen hundred tons. So we're we're really looking forward to getting access to these new sites and and then using the uh, that processing base as well in Darwin and you know, getting our fish to market in as fresh a condition as possible. Right, so in an operational sense, the fish that is harvested off Cone Bay and from these new leases will be processed in Darwin and then exported internationally. Is that the plan? A bit too early to say. It may be one uh, aspect of what we could do because at the moment we are processing in, in WA and we just we might continue doing that. It's just it gives us capacity as we as our volumes increase. We've got another uh, area to focus on whether the logistics work well for that or not. It's hard to say. It's a big country. That's the challenge with Australia, and you know it's not that easy to move fresh product around. But it just it does open up that potential. It's not something that we're uh, we've definitely got very little uh, plans in place yet because we're still as I say we're working through the, the whole process and we've still got due diligence to do and shareholders approval. So. So that special general meeting is being held in January and this will go to a vote, yeah. is that right? That's right, yeah. Yep. And you're and confident? We, yeah, yeah, we're confident. We're confident that you know that's going to be well received because I think it's a good fit and it's a bit of a win-win for everybody. And this one, I guess, uh, sort of getting a majority of Australia ownership and that's really nice to see because while it's uh, great to see aquaculture growing in Australia, we see a lot of people overseas having more interest in our uh, beautiful clean waters than sometimes what we can get our locals uh, involved in. So it's, I'm, I'm very personally very excited to be involved in it because I've been involved in aquaculture a lot overseas where it's a much larger industry generally and it's nice to see us uh, make some headway in our own country um, where we're obviously we've talked about this in the past we import sort of uh, 75% or more of our of seafood from overseas money from developing nations so it's good to have our own industry and especially we see that when we have these pandemics and other uh, restrictions on moving product around we've got to have some local capacity. Marine Produce Australia General Manager Alastair Smart speaking with Steph Sinclair about the company's new partnership with Wild Ocean Australia and an extraordinary general meeting uh, on the sale will take place on January the 10th. As you heard, Alastair, very excited about what that new partnership might mean for the planned expansion of Kimberley operations, including the development of 13 new leases in waters off the Kimberley coast, 16 past 12. Now, there are plans to cultivate asparagopsis seaweed in the ocean near Fremantle in Western Australia. Now, if you're not familiar with asparagopsis, CSIRO researchers have found that when it's fed to cattle and other ruminant stock, methane emissions are virtually eliminated. WA's Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development has given the approval for a company called Fremantle Seaweed to grow asparagopsis in 32 hectares of water in the Coburn Sound. If all goes to plan, the first crop could be harvested by early next year. Co-founders of Fremantle Seaweed, Mick Holland and Chris de Kruyper, say they believe cultivating the crop at a marine lease site is a first for WA. 
We're working on an offshore marine lease site as opposed to a number of our competitors working on inshore models. Um, we're believing that the offshore model will actually enable us to grow asparagopsis that has a higher bromoform content, up to 20 milligrams per gram, as opposed to an inshore model that is uh, around about 6 milligrams per gram. Um, we also have a much smaller carbon footprint and the ability to scale up, up and down the West Australian coast um, and produce a much more natural product. So this farm, it's all controlled, nothing's caught in the wild? No, it's all completely uh, controlled and we'll be growing from scratch and then harvesting off our lines. Does anyone else do this? Uh, so there's some groups around Western Australia, including the Brolis Islands, and there's also Harvest Road doing the inshore model. So yeah, lots of people are working on growing asparagopsis, but we, we believe we'll be the first ones to actually cultivate it um, at a marine lease uh, from scratch and have that finished uh, product. And what sort of difference will that make compared to your competitors? Why, why have you gone down that route? Um, so growing asparagopsis at a marine lease is a very much a natural product. Uh, so when we do uh, feed it to the cattle as a supplement, um, it means that the cattle is eating a, a natural product. Um, within that asparagopsis seaweed is the bromoform that uh, reacts with the, the enzymes in the cattle's gut that produces the methane. Um, but by providing them something that's very natural, it means there's no harm to the cattle and then there's, there's no issues for the consumer of the cattle product. The more people that are working on, the better. But what we believe that we're doing with the cultivation of seeded substrate and working on solving that so then we can have a constant constant production of asparagopsis year-round. Uh, so once we unlock that, we'll have that ability to have that supply to the market year-round. How are you able to encourage and cultivate asparagopsis from scratch? Um, we're initially, we'll be collecting um, brood stock to hopefully create seeded grow lines within our labs. Whilst we're cracking that method, we're actually going to use the fragmentation method to attach gametophytes to our lines and grow them out. And then hopefully in a short space of time, we'll actually be able to uh, use our seeded grow ropes. And how successful do you think that will be? Um, we're quite confident. We have an excellent team. Um, we've spent a couple of years researching, but until we actually obviously get it growing, we, we hold high hope. What makes Fremantle a good location to be doing this? Yeah, so Fremantle is really well positioned that we can grow both types of asparagopsis, asparagops, the tropical version, asparagopsis taxiformis, and then the cold water version, asparagopsis armata. So we actually have a really big growing season here in Fremantle. And yeah, I think there's absolutely something special in the water of, uh, of Derbal Nara. It's the perfect conditions for our aquaculture lease. Um, we have protected waters from the, the islands of Garden Island and Karnak and the fringing reefs of, of Straggler Reefs, um, but we also have ocean conditions, so yeah, it's the perfect place for us to grow. So you have the lease now, when will things start kicking off? Um, so we're installing our aquaculture equipment uh, early next year in January. From there, we'll then be able to attach our grow ropes, um, which we'll have out probably around from Feb. And then our first crop of asparagopsis and other types of seaweed will be around April. Are there any limitations or gaps in the knowledge for you guys in starting this operation? Yeah, the, the key gap at the moment is the fact that no one has closed the life cycle of asparagopsis. So when we talk about seeded substrate, 
We need the ability to induce sporulation of Asparagopsis, which is getting it to release its spores on a cue that we can simulate. Um, so there's cues in the environment um, as the water temperatures change, different seasons, Asparagopsis in the wild re will release its spores. We need to replicate that in our lab environment. And it's we've got a really good team working on that. Um, but at this stage, it's very much a gap to, to having that constant supply of Asparagopsis. So yeah, we will continue to fund research um, into solving that. And we believe that if we crack it, we'll have that first marine lease and ability to supply Asparagopsis year round. What's your big goal out of all of this, starting up this initiative? I suppose the, the big goal would be to be able to expand the industry to such a scale in Western Australia that we have a processing plant here, um, that everything's able to be done here and that we move on such a scale um, with other leaseholders uh, to be able to produce enough asparagopsis to cover all the cattle in Australia and then hopefully move overseas. Um, and if we're able to do that, then we can seriously make massive impact on climate change. Um, that would be probably my biggest goal. Yeah, and it's similar for me. Um, basically, I think Mick and I both just want to save the world. Uh, one piece of seaweed one, one at a time. time. <laughs> Co-founders of Fremantle Seaweed, Mick Holland and Chris DeKuyper. And they were speaking to Sophie Johnson about their Asparagopsis seaweed aquaculture lease, which was approved last month. And that'll be grown in 32 hectares of water in Coburn Sound. And the first crop could be harvested by as early as early next year. 22 past 12 on the WA Country Hour and a free trade agreement between Australia and India starts to come into effect from today. And our Trade Minister hopes it could be expanded. He says talks with the European Union are also going well, and we'll have more on that shortly, but the Australian-Indian Economic Cooperation and Trade Agreement will get rid of tariffs on 85% of Australia's exports to India. The products under the agreement include critical minerals, pharmaceuticals, cosmetics, lentils, seafood, sheep meat, horticulture and wine. The Federal Trade Minister Don Farrell says a second round trade deal could include additional agriculture products like beef, dairy and chickpeas, which have been left out in this initial free trade agreement. We are uh, having a second round of discussions with uh, the Indian in Indian government where we hope to extend the range of products that will be included in our uh, in our free trade agreement. The Prime Minister is visiting uh, uh, India early next year uh, and that will give us uh, an opportunity to further extend our trading relationship with the uh, with the Indian government. Also as part of this agreement was a thousand visas for, and I think some of them were working holiday visas, if I'm correct. Will those um, working holiday makers have to complete the 88 days of farm work in rural areas? Um, look, those are issues that we've, we have to uh, finally uh, determine, but um, I, uh, I would be confident that the uh, Australian economy benefits very significantly from these additional Indian workers. As, as you know, right throughout the, uh, the country, there are labour shortages and we're looking to these uh, 1,000 new Indian uh, uh, visa recipients uh, to fill some of the gaps that uh, currently exist in our workforce, particularly in the country. Now, a thousand visas, when you compare that to the actual worker shortage in Australia, which is tens of thousands of people, is there going to be scope as well in your second round of agreements to expand the number of visas? 
Um, look, I believe that'll be one of the very significant issues that will be on the table in those uh, in those discussions. The the Indian government is uh, very keen to expand um, the uh, the opportunities for Indians to to come to Australia. Yeah, we'd we'd like to um, see them here. They've uh, been terrific terrific uh, students, uh, and we'd look forward to uh, expanding our relationship with India in the in the months ahead. Now, speaking of another free trade agreement, you have just been in talks, um, I think, for the last sort of 10 days or so with um, the European Union. How is that one progressing? I've seen quotes saying that you won't just sign it for the sake of it. it that doesn't sound that positive that the uh, discussions have been going well. Oh, look, I got a very good uh, reception in uh, Europe, uh, Megan, and Australia is viewed very very positively there, but there are some tough negotiations uh, ahead. There are a number of crucial issues that are going to be very difficult on on both sides to uh, to deal with. Um, one of those issues is the issue of geographic uh, indicators, where uh, the Europeans are seeking to uh, prevent uh, Australian producers from uh, using a range of uh, names which uh, they feel uh, very uh, very strongly about. But having said all that, I do think that the opportunities um, are there to uh, have a, uh, a breakthrough uh, agreement uh, with the Europeans. One of the advantages that we have in those uh, negotiations is the Europeans want access to our critical minerals uh, and our, our rare earths. I think that's uh, going to be a very key part of the uh, of the negotiations, and I'm looking forward to trying to finalise that agreement by the middle of next year. New Zealand brokered an FTA deal with the European Union and there was a lot of criticism that was very limited for their agriculture industry. Do you have a message for Australian producers that, um, you know, you, you won't leave it to be limited for the agricultural industry in Australia? No, we're looking, we're looking for a very broad uh, trading uh, relationship with with the Europeans. Uh, we believe, obviously, we're a much bigger bigger economy than uh, than New Zealand. We have a much larger uh, population, and uh, as I said before, we've got access to those critical minerals uh, and those rare earths that are going to be very much part of the renewable future for both our country and for and for the Europeans. So, I think we bring to the table um, a lot more than. Moving to another topic now, um, to China, that you're looking at brokering a, a deal that would see us drop our WTO cases against China for the trade bans? Oh, Megan, we're not proposing to uh, <coughs> drop our uh, cases in the, uh, in the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization is the only uh, venue that uh, we have available to us to prosecute the case for the removal of those trade blockages particularly as they relate to uh, to wine, to barley, to meat uh, and even to, uh, to crayfish. But we've said all along that our preferred course of action would be uh, uh, discussion and uh, I've made, made it very clear to my uh, Chinese uh, counterparts, uh, as has the Foreign Minister on her recent uh, visit to, to China, that we are prepared at any stage to have some discussions with our Chinese counterparts to remove those uh, those trade blockages. We are trying to normalise and stabilise the relationship with with China and uh, we see it 
uh, in the interest of both countries that those uh, blockages be removed. And if those blockages would be removed, would you be willing to then drop the WTO cases? We're proceeding with the cases. Uh, We've made that very clear to the Chinese government, but we've also made it clear that at any stage uh, we're prepared to have discussions about how we best resolve those trade blockages. Have you actually been able to have conversations with the Chinese government? I know that's been a a huge issue, is that there's been no talks happening. No, the opportunities, uh, unfortunately, uh, haven't uh, arisen uh, yet. We were hoping to catch up uh, in Bali a couple of weeks ago, but a combination of factors meant that 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 wasn't possible. But we've reiterated our uh, offer to meet with them uh, at any place at any time to try and resolve these outstanding issues by um, discussion. Australian Trade Minister John Farrell speaking with Megan Hughes about the Australian-India Economic Cooperation and Trade Agreement, which takes effect from today. Also touching on how talks with the EU are going uh, on a separate free trade agreement and explaining as well that robust discussions are still happening with China about resuming trade on those banned commodities into that market. But speaking of that free trade agreement with India... Cotton Australia CEO Adam Kay is happy uh, that it will allow 300,000 bales of Aussie cotton to get exported to India duty-free, but he hopes that figure could certainly be in, uh, increased into the future. We really think it's a great start and you know, full marks to the negotiators from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade that have, that have got this going, you know, that's been a long negotiation. Yeah, we're, we're very excited about it, but we would love more. And, and we're working with them on you know, the, the second round of negotiations to see if we can, can increase that amount. We're really making the case to them that this is not a, a one-way flow of uh, cotton just to India. This is a two-way flow. That cotton in India gets made into yarn and then into garments and comes back to Australia. And we're really trying to make that point to the, um, you know, the Indian government and their diplomats to show them that this really is a, a two-way flow of goods. How significant is the Indian market for Australian cotton at the moment? Well, look, it's important, but it's not our major market. But I think, you know, when you look at projections forward, it's going to be expanding. You know, for a long time, the Indian market was self-sufficient. But as their textile industry has grown, they've got more and more demand. And so, you know, I think they could become a a very significant player for Australia. And we've got great relationships with, with India and their government. And so I really believe this is a wonderful opportunity. It's a good start to get that tariff, that 10% tariff removed from those 300,000 bales. We can increase that amount. That will really you know, start driving the cotton trade to India and the, and the finished product coming back to Australia. Now, the forecast for the 2023 crop is potentially going to be above 5 million bales. Uh, Again, there has been a lot of wet weather and heavy rain and flooding around and damaged farms. Is that an accurate forecast? That forecast is based on the amount of cotton that was planted. We were hoping that it was going to be close to the record of the previous season, but that wet weather really impacted on the plantings, particularly in southern New South Wales, where they ran out of time. They've got a very distinct planting window. And if it gets too late, the yield is really impacted. And so the area was drastically reduced in the bottom half of New South Wales. And so that means that uh, instead of the sort of the 5.6 million bales we had last year, we're more looking at something like 5 million bales at this stage, if the season goes well for us. 
Gotten Australia CEO Adam Kay speaking with Megan Hughes. 27 minutes to one on The Country Hour. You're listening to the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. And no news headlines today, but it is time to head to the Bureau now to get an update on what's happening with the weather. Caroline Crow is today's duty forecaster. Good afternoon to you, Caroline. Let's kick things off in the north. What's the latest with ex-tropical cyclone Ellie? Yeah, sure. So extropical cyclone Ali is now uh, moved into the Kimberley region. Uh, it's currently sitting uh, just to the west or west-northwest of Halls Creek. And then it is expected to track slowly westwards today and then become a little bit deeper on Friday. And then it uh, becomes really uh, slow moving, moving or even nearly near stationary. Um, and with the system, as it's moved into uh, the Kimberley, it's been and it's brought a, or increased the rainfall and thunderstorm activity um, throughout the, the area, particularly sort of away from western parts at the moment. And we're looking at heavy rainfall uh, over the next uh, several days. Uh, so today we could see rainfall totals around that 50 to 150 millimetres uh, and even isolated falls more than that up to 200 millimetres p- possible, uh, particularly sort of in the um, western and northern parts associated with the low um, And then coming into uh, Saturday, uh, as the low deepens a little bit, uh, we could also see an increase in rainfall as well. So similar 50 to 150 millimetres, but we could see more isolated totals up to 300 millimetres and very isolated totals up to that 400 millimetre mark in the vicinity of the low. And that's most likely uh, to be in those uh, western and uh, the northwestern flank of the low. Uh, So pretty intense rainfall. Um, And then as the system is slow moving, Uh, Similar rainfall again for Sunday. And then coming into uh, Monday uh, and early next week, we do start see the system uh, start moving more towards the southwest. Uh, So with the... uh, X uh, cyclone, it's in the Kimberley, uh, heavy rainfall possible, uh, could lead to flash flooding. So we do have a severe weather warning out for the system as well at the moment for intense rainfall and damaging winds. Uh, and that will most likely continue for the next couple of days as well. Uh, there is also a flood uh, watch for the Kimberley and the Sturt Creek uh, district catchments as well. Um, and that's uh, going to continue also. You mentioned that it might move further south. Um, Could that bring some rain to the Pilbara, the Gascoigne and further south? Where is it looking like it, it might move? Yeah, so there is a little bit more uncertainty uh, as we progress into next week on uh, the exact location uh, and how fast the system moves. Uh, But at this point in time, it does look as though the system's going to move more towards the uh, southwest and potentially it could move into uh, the Pilbara region. And yes, as it moves into that region there, we could see some increases in rainfall as well with the system. Okay, so what else is the outlook and the situation for the rest of the northern and eastern forecast districts? Yeah, so that's uh, the Kimberley region. So as we go into the Pilbara today, we're looking at uh, showers and thunderstorms uh, through the northern parts and close to the coast as well. 
and then also into the north interior and uh, northern parts of the south interior. And that's going to be fairly similar for the next couple of days as well. So coming into Friday, we've got those showers and thunderstorms through uh, northern parts of the Pilbara and eastern parts and into the uh, north interior and northern parts of the south interior. And uh, the area does increase a little bit getting into northwest eastern parts of the Gascoigne on Saturday and fairly similar on Sunday as well. Okay, and what's the situation across the southwest land division? Yeah, it's a little bit quieter at the moment uh, through uh, southern parts of the state and in the southwest land division. So there's a ridge to the south of the state and we've got a trough uh, down the west coast. It's bringing some east-northeasterly winds over the area and warm temperatures towards the west coast. That trough is going to move inland uh, coming into Friday as we weak front just approaches from the southwest. Now as that front approaches, it does just brush or some of the remnants of it brush the, the very western south coast. So we could see the odd shower sort of just right on the coast uh, as that passes through. Uh, but very light falls expected. And then coming into next week, we see another ridge uh, push through to the south of the state and it's going to increase those winds east south Easterly and then tending more northeasterly as the, the week progresses, sorry. And we're going to see a trough develop down the west coast as well, and we're going to get warming temperatures uh, near uh, western parts uh, of the state as well. So it could get pretty fresh and gusty uh, next week um, with those increasing winds. We've also got that increase in temperature as well, and we could sort of start seeing some elevated fire danger ratings uh, next week as well. Okay. Now, you mentioned some warnings in the north, but can you just give us a wrap of what we need to be aware of across the state this afternoon in terms of of warnings in place? Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned, we've got those severe weather warnings through the Kimberley and northern parts of the interior associated with XTC Alley, along with flood warnings through the Kimberley as well. And then there is a fire weather warning for the Midwest Coast and the Swan Inland uh, districts for today. And then also there is a heatwave warning and that is for the Gascoigne district. And then there's also marine wind warnings as well. So those coastal winds along the North Kimberley coast and West Kimberley coast. And that's associated with uh, XTC Alley and also uh, the monsoon uh, north west northwesterly winds start to increase as well. So they're going to be quite uh fresh, uh, strong and gusty northwesterly winds along the coast through that area there today. And then coming into tomorrow, those uh, strong, uh, fresh winds will continue along the uh, Kimberley coast. And we've also got uh, strong winds uh, down the west coast uh, from Ningaloo coast, the Gascoigne coast. And then also right around uh, to the Esperance coast, there's a strong wind warning as well. All right, Caroline, thank you so much for that update this afternoon. No worries, Jess. Thanks. ABC Radio, emergency information. Yeah, bushfire emergency warning is now in place for some people in the city of Rockingham, just south of Perth. So this is for people in an area bound by Warnborough Sound Avenue to the west, Ennis Avenue to the east, San Sebastian Boulevard to the north and Port Kennedy Drive to the south in Port Kennedy. 
So if you're driving towards that area, please be aware there is quite a serious fire in that area. The bushfire is moving fast and in a southwesterly direction. It's not contained or controlled. Firefighters are on the scene, but some roads may be closed. So please try and avoid that area. For more information, uh, I'll give you the details for that shortly for the websites and the phone numbers, etc. There are some other bushfires around in Western Australia today. They're at an advice level. So there's one for parts of Marty in the city of Caratha, one for parts of Ingarda in the Shire of Carnarvon, one for parts of Manilia and Linden in the Shire of Carnarvon. Uh, there's a bushfire advice also in place for people using the Northwest Coastal Highway in Cane River Conservation Park in the Shire of Ashburton. There's one in place for parts of Beechina in the Shire of Mundaring and one in place for parts of East Pingley. So East Poppininning as well, Pingley, Poppininning and West Pingley in the Shire of Kubaling and in the Shire of Pingley. And there's also a bushfire advice in place for the northeastern part of Trent in the Shire of Denmark. So lots of fires around. If mm. you want more information on any of those, just visit Emergency WA. Just search those two words. You can call DFIS. That's one three. Triple three seven for the Department of Fire and Emergency Services, and you can also follow them on Twitter and Facebook. And of course, keep listening to ABC Local Radio for updates on all of those fires, including that one that's still at an emergency level in the city of Rockingham. I know most people in that area are tuning into ABC Seven Twenty Perth, but if you're listening in the regions in the southwest, for instance, and you're driving towards that area, please try and avoid it. There uh, is a total fire ban in place today because of the forecast extreme danger. So this is for parts of the Midwest and Wheatbelt and for some Perth metropolitan regions. So in the Midwest and Wheatbelt, it's for Chapman Valley, Greater Geraldton, Irwin, Northampton and 2J. And in the Perth metro region, that's for Mundaring and Swan. And, yeah, as uh, you just mentioned about the rain that's happening in the north, DFIS has also put out an alert for the north of WA. So if you live in parts of the Kimberley and north interior districts, you need to take action and stay safe with the severe weather to come. And the locations that may be affected include Derby, Halls Creek, Kununurra, Wyndham, Troughton Island and Warman. So the weather's not unusual for this time of year, but it can still damage homes and make travel dangerous. So one word of warning is don't drive into water where you don't know the, uh, the depth and the, and the current. So just take care. Yeah, important advice indeed. There will be some road closures in that area too, so just check uh, Main Roads WA. There's a Main Roads travel map you can actually check. Again, if you need more details on any of those warnings for the north, if you're not familiar with those uh, sort of warnings, again, visit Emergency WA and you'll be able to follow your nose. As far as going through the amount of rainfall that's happened in the last 24 hours, in the northern and eastern forecast districts, it's all been dominated by the Kimberley, as Caroline Crow was saying. Bedford Downs Airstrip had 50. Uh, I'll only go through the top ones. Uh, so Halls Creek Airport had 58. Kingston Rest, 80. And then you've got Lake Argyle Resort, for instance, had 63. Mullabulla Airstrip, 54. The top was Mount Amherst with 101. And and then there's a few other 40s as well. Apart from the Kimberley, though, there was not a skerrick of rainfall recorded anywhere. So nothing in the Pilbara, the Gascoigne interior, Goldfields, Eucla and the entire southwest land division forecast districts. 
No rain at all. Oh, Richard, thank you so much for that update. 16 minutes to one. On ABC Radio WA, this is the WA Country Hour. Life is full of last-minute decisions. Dad, what is for dinner? I don't know, mate. We'll grab something out. But in a bushfire, there is no last minute because that could mean tragedy. Mate, you need to get out. Don't go back in. Will you stay and defend or leave? Whatever you decide, put your plan in place now. If you stay, you might be without electricity and other essentials, so make sure you have enough food, fuel, batteries and other supplies for at least five days. Remember... There are no second chances in a bushfire. Keep safe and keep listening to ABC Radio. You're tuned into the WA Country Hour. Jessica Hayes with you. It's coming up to a quarter to one uh, via the digital stream. Great to have you tuned in. Uh, Now, the number of farmers growing garlic in Australia has tumbled when imports first came into the country. But the chair of the Australian Garlic Industry Association, John Olive says there's a growing appetite for flavourful, fresh, Aussie-grown bulbs. The garlic industry in general itself, it's not a levy-paying horticultural sector. So to get growers together, the Australian Garlic Industry Association was formed many, many years ago. We have at the moment probably uh, about 110 members and probably before there was a mass import of garlic from overseas, Chinese garlic in the 90s, I think they had around about 700. So the industry itself has had uh, some ups and downs over the years. And how hard would it be to guess how much tonnage would be produced in garlic a year? Uh, Incredibly hard. We do a lot of work with HIA, Horticulture Innovation Australia, to try and work some of those figures out. But really, it is sort of a little bit guesswork. I just don't have the figures right right with me at this stage. What's the difference between Australian garlic and imported garlic? Well, clearly, one's been bought in from an overseas country. It's gone through a uh, long stage of transport. It comes into Australia, then it's gassed with methyl bromide to try and eradicate viruses and such like that would be coming over in the garlic itself. It's probably or maybe sprayed with inhibitors to stop it, you know, extend the shelf life. So give it that extra bit of time that it would have in transport. Whereas Australian garlic, generally speaking, it's a direct-to-market. I was looking at the stats for the world. It's quite st- Staggering when you think that China produces over 75%, they were saying, of the world's Mm. garlic. Correct. Yeah, that's right. But you have to bear in mind, a lot of that's also uh, what you'd call industrial garlic as well. It goes into food services industry. and doesn't go into what you call the fresh market and to the consumer. It would be going into an industrial market in things like breadcrumbs and additives to other dishes. How hard is it for Australian garlic growers to compete against the prices of that cheaper garlic from overseas? Well, I think we've got to the stage where we don't try to compete. You know, clearly... In Australia, we're paying quite a bit out in terms of obligations that an employer has to employees, you know, work cover, superannuation and things like that. We know that these things aren't paid to overseas workers in that sense. So there's some very, very significant differences in input costs 
So we just focus really on, as you said before, the better flavour of Australian garlic. And this is what our association does, is to try and educate our consumers or educate the consumers around what is a better flavoured garlic. You know, there's many, many different cultivars that are grown and they all have their unique flavours and unique holding capacities and such like. And some are better fresh, some are better cooked. So, you know, our role is to try and educate consumers around those many aspects. I imagine it'd be pretty hard to find that kind of range of garlic, even if you've got local garlic growers. Uh, you, you certainly don't find the range of garlic in the major chains. There's no doubt about that. And for obvious reasons too, because, you know, it, it takes up more space. And for many people, garlic is just garlic. Uh, well, the reality is that uh, various, many different flavours and textures and profiles of garlic, many local growers would probably grow three, four, five different cultivars. So if if you're lucky enough, you'll be able to find a local grower who'll be able to find you some uh, different flavoured garlics. Sounds like fun testing them out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be. I mean, it would be fantastic. Yeah, you just got to find the time to get around to them. <laughs> John Olaf, how has the industry been going as a whole with the very atrocious weather conditions that have been coming our way this year? How's that affected the harvest? Well, uh, <laughs> oh boy. Look, you know, some of the stories you hear, and I haven't verified a lot of them, but I'm hearing lots of things around secondary shooting. Garlics that are too wet to harvest, can't get out of the ground. Paddocks have been flooded and grounds inundated. So, look, I think there's a lot of difficulty within our sector. It would be just the same as most other uh, agriculture, horticulture sectors in Australia at the moment. You know, it's just been a uniquely different year. And what would you say to somebody who was contemplating trying to grow garlic commercially for the first time? Start small. <laughs> Start small and learn through your mistakes without risking too much. If you do have a bad year or bad failure or you've made a mistake or what have you, we do see and hear from time to time people who go out too quickly, too fast, and you know, they don't understand quite what's required. John Olaf, a garlic grower and chair of the Australian Garlic Industry Association, and he was speaking to Jennifer Nichols. Now, 10 to 1 on ABC Radio, life on a station can be pretty lonely sometimes, especially if you're a kid. But for eight-year-old Ollie McKay, there's no place he'd rather be than mustering Red Angus cattle with his umbia with his family at Ambia Station across the border near Alice Springs. Now, Ollie's parents, Angus and Kimberly McKay, run the show. But as you're about to find out, Ollie is a vital part of the operation. Right now, we are at our station yards on our station. The yards that we're at right now is one of our closest yards to our home. And I live on Ambia Station. Ollie, what has it been like for you growing up on a big cattle station in Central Australia? Um, it has been really fun because when you because when you get to when you get to do mustering, it's very fun mustering and mustering up the cattle. What is it about mustering that you find so fun, mate? Um, going fast on the motorbikes. Tell me about the best muster you've ever had. Oh, that's very hard. My best muster was mustering up the biggest, mustering up a big mob of cattle. We walked then to, um, it's a nice yard and near it is a little dam and, and it's nice cattle there. 
can you tell me a little bit about what a day looks like in the life of Ollie? Uh, the day looks like, well, but the day looks like on the cattle station is, is like doing mastering, riding your motorbikes, changing tyres, doing cattle, that's doing work. Mate, you live so far from from town. What do you do for school? We do school of the air on the computer, and we half and we three hours out of town and a half. Tell me a little bit about um, school of the air and maybe some of the friends you've made. Um, my friends are Lawson, Lawson Schwebs. He was my school friend, but now his big sisters at boarding school so now he moved moved now to be with his big sisters is it hard sometimes maybe not having your friends in the classroom with you yes i'll be write messages like on paper and and we and we told each other what's it like when you get a letter from your friend um it's like a pics of me and him and what and what he done have been doing. So like he was mustering. How does that make you feel when you get a letter like that? I'm happy he would I was happy for him and I wrote something to him and I said, Cool, I was mustering too Lawson. Do you like uh living out here? Yes. I love living out here. If you could give anyone advice on cattle work what would that advice be uh, my advice would be that keep if you fall off your motorbike that step back on and keep on mastering and 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 the cattle the good cattle are wet angus there you go some hot tips there from eight-year-old ollie mckay from umbira station in the territory speaking with hugo ricard bell what a little legend hey now the end of the year means a wind down for many of us, uh, but for others it's as busy as ever, checking water, fencing, picking fruit, and for some of the more daring of us, collecting crocodile eggs. Yes, you heard that right. Up in the top end, crocodile farms have started their annual egg collection. Michelle Stanley caught up with the general manager of Cogodelius Park, Emily Moyes, to find out how and why. Can you see that's Mama just there? She's just popped up in front of the... Sawgrass there. Um, she knows that we're coming around and she wants to protect her nest. So we're just cruising around our river at the moment. Every year we collect nests from here. Depends on the rain how many nests we have for the year. You might have maybe 12 to 16 nests. Um, so what we're doing is kind of trying to look for signs where a female may be nesting. So it might be that mum is out on the bank or she's on the river and she's usually quite fixated on staring where her nest is because she's being a great mum and being quite protective. Or it might be other signs where we can see grass is being pushed over, vegetation has been clumped together. You can always tell where a female is generally getting ready or whether it does actually usually have eggs in the nest because when they have made the nest and they have laid the eggs, they put a lot of work into it. So they use their tail, they use their claws, they mix up all the grass or the dirt or the vegetation, the mud, and it's, it's really intricate. They make you know, a fantastic nest. It can range in size. It can be up to two metres wide, but sometimes you might only have a tiny nest that is, you know, might be only 30 centimetres wide. So how has it been this year? Is it normal to be out looking for nests at this time of year? 
Yeah, it is. So with the wet season um, comes nest. It's our favourite time of year. Depending on the rain really depends on when our nests start and how many. So because we have had a good block of rain in the last two weeks, we have had a very strong start to the season. We've collected about six nests so far in the park. Whereas generally you might find with the first few big rains, we'll have one or two nests and then we'll have a bit of a break. But because we have had that consistent rain, the females, they just, they know their biological clock goes, okay, it's time to lay your eggs. They know that the weather's cooling down. It's not going to be hot. So we have had yeah, a really good start to the season. How many eggs do you sometimes find in the nests? What's typical? So it does depend again on the female and her experience, her maturity, as well as environmental factors but I mean your average nest you might have about 40 eggs I think our largest nest last year that we had had 78 eggs yes that I mean that's a massive nest and you can see big ones up to you know that 80 mark and you can see some as little as you know 10 to 20 but generally speaking you know your average is around that 40 mark have we found another one off to the left oh, of us here? Just looking at this female, it looks like there's another mound up there as well. So you can see here this female here. See how she's looking up at the bank? Yeah. And she's just turning her head as we come along and I can see her nest just under that tree. See a mound oh, there? Yeah. So what do you do now that you've seen that? Well, we get to do the fun part. We get to get out and, and check the nest and have a look if there's any eggs. And if there is, then we'll dig up the nest and, and grab them out. What's it like? What's going through your head when you're trying to get in to get those eggs <laughs> look safety safety is my number one concern you know it is a dangerous job so we need to make sure that we're equipped and that everyone feels comfortable so we'll always do a bit of a team brief before we leave the boat make sure everyone understands their roles make sure everyone's comfortable and confident and just checking throughout the nest collection everyone all good yep sweet everyone's comfortable after you know you've you've done it for a while you it's just kind of like driving to the shops and and getting groceries you know just becomes second nature really do you still get that adrenaline coursing through your system absolutely when you're down on the ground covered in mud trying to get eggs and there's crocs coming out at you it's always a fun way to start your day and we don't drink much coffee around here (laughs) (laughs) this is a beautiful nest she's done a great job nice size as you can see you see how she's mixed everything so well together. You've got grass, you've got straw, you've got mud, some rocks. It's nice and damp, which is exactly what we want. It's nice and cool. There we go, look at that. Oh wow. Beautiful eggs. So they're not that much bigger than like chicken eggs. Uh not too not too big. It does depend on the female as well, the size of the female, depending on what capacity she can carry and what size they are. Some beautiful eggs. So you can see here, see this one here is quite mucousy so that's you can tell it's nice and fresh so she would have laid this early hours of this morning all right so what we're going to do now so I'm just going to grab a pencil and what we do is we put a line on the top so the way that crocodile eggs work is the embryo is attached at the top once it's laid and we can't roll those eggs if we roll those eggs the embryos will die they'll drown so we want to make sure that we mark these all before we put them in the esky. So how many did you get in total just now? Um, I mean, that was a decent sized clutch, so probably around 60. Emily Moyes, who is the general manager of Crocodilius Park in Darwin. Yeesh, that sounds like a scary job. Could not pay me enough money in the world to do that. Now, that's almost time from me. It's been so good to have you along today via the digital stream. 
Remember that for more rural news at any time, you can head on over to the ABC Rural website. That's abc.net.au slash rural. There's some really fantastic stories up there today, one focusing on the feral deer population and management uh, over in the East Coast. There's also talk of summer fruit as well, so get on around to that. And you can also find us on social media as well. Well, back to local programming tomorrow. I'll be here in studio from midday. You're off to the news now. It's one o'clock.